Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Creation Today Claims series, posted January 22nd, 2018, titled, Genetic Entropy, We're All Doomed. Years then, we haven't even copyrighted our material. We allow people to copy it, to give it away. That's what we want. Today, we're talking about X-Men potential. If the theory of evolution is true, mutations and genetic advancements should create superpower humans in our future. Society should aspire to be more like us. Mutant and proud. Today, let's take a look at a scientific apologetic to get our answer. Featuring Eric's science consultant, Stan Lee, to talk about the dangers of mutations, gamma radiation, and spider bites. Honestly, that wouldn't be any worse than some episodes. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. If you're new to the channel and are interested in exploring science, click on that subscribe button so you don't miss anything. You mustn't knock it. Mutation took us from single-celled organisms to being the dominant form of reproductive life on this planet. Infinite forms of variation with each generation all through mutation. Then let's reclaim that word. Despite the intro touting genetic advancement, today's Creation Today episode had Eric and guests talking about the opposite, what they call genetic entropy. So how is the human genome actually doing? That's a question we're going to ask our guest today, my friend and a well-known creation speaker, writer, and researcher, Dr. Robert Carter. Whenever Eric has a guest on, I like to learn a little bit more about them. You may remember Dr. Carter from my video on mitochondrial Eve. He currently works for Creation Ministries International and earned his PhD in marine biology from the University of Miami with the dissertation on Nidarian fluorescent proteins. Nidaria is the phylum containing the jellyfish and similar marine life. His field wasn't genetics, but it did involve gene sequencing, so not bad. Now you've done a lot of research on the genome. No doubt, Robert is a speaker and writer. As for research, Robert is the co-author of exactly one paper in the past 10 years, Patterns of Mutation Accumulation in the Human H1N1 Influenza Virus Since 1918. I'd love to go into detail on how the upstart Theoretical Biology and Medical Modeling Journal that published Robert's paper specifically seeks to provide new ideas that may be quite off the mainstream of biomedicine and self-acknowledges that publishing with them is unlikely to affect your street credibility. But this isn't a video about journal legitimacy. What is relevant is that Robert's co-author on the paper is one John C. Sanford, author of the book Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome. We'll come back to John in just a bit. Could you briefly describe to us what the genome is? Well, what the genome is? <laughs> That's a tricky one. All right, I get that not everyone is comfortable on camera and it's easy to get flustered, but you're on the show as a genetics expert. Defining genome shouldn't be a tricky one for the expert guest. Not a great start, but we can recover. We have things called genes, and genes affect how high, tall we are, what, what we look like, our coloration, and things like that. Um, all the genes together are called the genome. See, Robert? Not so tricky. That's 
pretty much right. It's actually a play on words. You know, back in the old days, you would have like a tome or a tome of reference. We still use that phrase a little bit. It's like all the information on the subject. Oh, no. We're back off the rails a little bit. Perhaps this was a genetic urban legend you heard in college or something? I know the etymology can be unclear for some words, but with modern scientific ones, the origins are generally pretty clear for researchers like University of Michigan's History of Medicine professor Howard Markle. When it comes to genome, we have to give a botanist from the University of Hamburg, his name was Hans Winkler, all the credit. He was writing a textbook on botany in 1920, and he collided the German root word for gene, which is gene, with the Greek suffix ohm, which indicates body. It's not tome, it's ohm. That's okay, Robert. Back on track. Genetically I, speaking, I'm then, man, I think I stumbled all over that, but I've never really been asked that question before. He's <laughs> never been asked that before. Eric's genetics expert has never been asked what a genome is before. Not on a quiz or exam or at a party or something. So I'm wondering, <laughs> genetically speaking, how are we doing? I mean, oh. I, you're, I know oh. you're probably concerned looking at oh, me, okay? It's a pretty good joke, Eric. Charming self-deprecation wins the crowd. Imagine that we are, um, we have, we carry information within us, and that information has to get passed on every generation. Mm -hmm. But imagine that the little things that copy the information are not perfect. I'm a little nervous what you mean by information here. DNA is a chain of organic molecules, not information. But generally this is good. When genes duplicate, there are sometimes copying errors that we call mutations. Carry on. It would be like if you had, you're had you teaching a high school biology class and at the end of the year all the students had to make a copy of their textbook and throw away the textbook that they used and hand the copy on to the next student. Oh boy. Mm -hmm. Or what if you live in the second century CE and if you had a copy of someone's book about this cool guy named Jesus, the only way to get one was to copy it by hand. That's what it's like. Little mistakes occur every generation. In the science textbook or in the Bible. Or both. Eventually, no student will possibly be able to pass biology class because there'll be so many mistakes in every textbook. How many copies do you think that would take, Robert? And how many years was the Bible copied by hand? Never mind. We're here to talk about genetics, right? That's pretty much what we're seeing happening in human genetics over time. Every generation has more mistakes than the generation before. Oh, well, if you want to extend the textbook copying analogy to genetics, you'll need to modify it to better reflect some of the other factors that play a role. For example, the principle of natural selection, where the organisms best suited for their environment will have more offspring than those less suited. In your classroom, only the most accurate copies would be handed to the next students, while the least accurate copies would be discarded. Because genes are inherited from two parents, the textbook copier should have two originals in front of them as they do the work, thereby increasing the chances that an unaltered version would carry forward. It would also need the concept of beneficial mutations, where these books might also be improved by the students copying them. These improved copies would be even more favored to hand over to the new students than the originals. However, this analogy is inherently problematic as it assumes we're starting off with a perfect original textbook that appeared from nowhere. But we know that the first textbook wasn't created from the dust of the ground or the rib of a man. The first textbooks would have been disconnected observations about the world recorded on clay or papyrus. Over time, more observations recorded on parchment. And over more time, some connecting ideas like movement to the stars or functions of the body. Years pass and the ideas that proved most useful stayed in the book and obsolete ideas excluded. New editions are continually produced, each improving on the last. Refining branches to cosmology, physics, chemistry, biology. 
The classroom analogy doesn't work unless you somehow assume a scenario of a sudden perfect original text with no previous basis and no room for future improvement. And that's why this degrading book example really only works for something like the Bible. I assume Eric doesn't want to talk about a degrading Bible. Which means eventually we are going to go extinct. Okay, we finally get to Robert's first scientific claim. Though he doesn't make it directly, what he implies... What I know from having read his partner John Stanford's book is that harmful genetic mutations are accumulating in humans, and at a sustained rate such that these accumulated mutations will be the cause of death in humans in some unspecified way. Perhaps we'll lose the ability to reproduce like in children of men. Or perhaps stop having limbs or faces or the good sense to put food in our mouths. The nature of this predicted genetic extinction event is unclear, as we don't have any examples of any other species that died out from too many mutations. Which is odd because there are plenty of organisms on the planet with higher relative rates of genetic mutation and much, much shorter lifespans, and therefore have had orders of magnitude more generations for this genetic entropy to kill them, or at least affect them in some observable way. Give us some of the, give us some of the math, give us some of the science behind how you said it's, it's, it's going, how many times you gave us one thing, a number, it's going way too fast, the genetic downhill slide is happening mm -hmm. fast. Okay, I guess that's a question. Maybe? But I agree with Eric. This segment could really use some math and science. You got this, Robert. Every child born uh, has 60 to 100 mutations that the parent was not born with. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that's actually that measurement is coming from a study in Iceland. That's the most recent, most accurate one. The only genetic mutation study I could find associated with Iceland was this one. And it studied mitochondrial DNA mutation rates and not general genome mutation rates, which are quite different things. See my previous mitochondrial DNA video. I'm hoping Robert hasn't mixed these things up. That said, this study on rates of spontaneous mutation gives an estimate of 64 mutations per zygote. So that is within the low end of Robert's range, and I'm willing to just go with his numbers on this for the sake of argument. Note that James F. Crow is one of the co-authors. We'll talk about him later. So that's 60 negative steps. It's like you're taking 60 steps backwards before you can even take an evolutionary step forwards. Now, Robert... 60 mutations doesn't necessarily mean 60 steps backwards. Mutations can be negative, positive, or, which accounts for the vast majority, completely neutral. To imply that all mutations are negative is simply false. Also, the idea of forward or backward implies that evolution has some kind of directionality for it. It does not. Evolution merely favors the changes that encourage survival and increase reproduction within an ever-changing environment. What's helpful today may not be helpful tomorrow. It's going the wrong direction for them. Without passing judgment on Robert's research abilities, whatever skills he has as a science communicator are not on display today. I've watched the head, and in this appearance, he's the genetic equivalent of Chicken Little, yelling the sky is falling, but providing no reason to have confidence in his impassioned warnings. Our host Eric specifically asks Robert for some math or science to sink our teeth into, and unfortunately, it never arrives. But wanting to understand and address this topic seriously, I had to abandon Robert's interview and instead turn to the book Genetic Entropy by Robert's H1N1 co-researcher, John Sanford. Here, the hidden assertion Robert tries to make is laid out in black and white. John and Robert claim that all genetic mutations are harmful, and by corollary, that there is no such thing as a beneficial genetic mutation. Now, with all of this, this knowledge from geneticists, why is the evolutionary community not recognizing this reality? That's a good question, Marianne. Why don't geneticists agree with John and Robert's conclusion? John starts by showing a standard bell curve, 
with the center of the curve representing genetic mutations that have purely neutral, or zero, effect on the organism, with negatively affecting mutations to the left and positively affecting mutations on the right. According to John, this view of the world is a fiction and unsupported by observation. It's because it stands against 150 years of Darwinian theory. It's not research. It's not data. That the genetics community doesn't agree with Robert's conclusions must be a deliberate cover-up conspiracy to protect evolution from the secret truth. John writes, Population geneticists know that essentially all mutations are deleterious, his favorite synonym for harmful, and that mutations having positive effects on fitness are so rare as to be excluded from such diagrams. As evidence, he points to a diagram he adapts from a 1979 study by Motu Kimura. So what was Kimura's study all about? It was proposing a mathematical model of evolution rates, a function of population size, generation span in years, and rates of neutral and near-neutral mutations. In the graph here, the gray zone represents mutations that are not expressed in the organism's physiology well enough to have natural selection be able to act upon them, and thus they are neutral. John provides this commentary. In Kimura's figure, which, as a side note, does not actually appear in Kimura's research, but was rather adapted by John, he does not show any mutations to the right of zero, i.e. there are zero beneficial mutations shown. He obviously considered beneficial mutations to be so rare as to be outside of consideration. Is that true? Kimura's paper is all three pages long, so John would have had to have read this clarification. In this formulation, we disregard beneficial mutations and restrict our consideration only to deleterious and neutral mutations. Admittedly, this is an oversimplification, but as I will show later, a model assuming that beneficial mutations also arise at a constant rate, independent of environmental changes, leads to unrealistic results. So what were these unrealistic results? Not that beneficial mutations would have too little impact to overcome the deleterious, but the opposite. The presence of any beneficial mutations sent the rate of evolution so enormously high that it overshadowed the model's other predictions. In fact, Kimura's conclusions fly in the face of John's genetic entropy idea, quantifying a rate of loss of fitness at 10 to the negative 7 per generation. He writes, Whether such a small rate of deterioration in fitness constitutes a threat to the survival and welfare of the species, not to the individual, is a moot point but this can be easily taken care of by adaptive gene substitutions that must occur from time to time, say once in every few hundred generations. Agree or disagree, why would John so dramatically misrepresent Kimura to allegedly establish the rarity of beneficial mutations? This is the very foundation of his genetic entropy argument, and his single scientific source disagrees with him. But they just then say, well, there's got to be a way to get over this, and it must happen, and let's do more experimenting to figure it out. Mm -hmm. But the more experimenting they do, the more they box themselves into a corner. Wow. Perhaps he means experiments like the well-known long-term E. coli evolution study. We know John is aware of it, because his book directly quotes Lenski. Lenski set up 12 populations of E. coli and let them evolve under nutrient-limited conditions for 10,000 generations. In all 12 of the populations, a significant increase in fitness was observed. In the experiment, beneficial mutations arose about every 15 generations, with about 1% of the beneficial mutations becoming fixed into the population. With adequate time and population, one in a million is a relatively frequent occurrence. As they say, even if you're one in a million, in New York City, there are eight of you. Yet John says, it can very reasonably be argued that random mutations are never good. Never good. He jumps right over rare, straight to never good, 
while simultaneously citing an experiment where 12 out of 12 lineages displayed positive mutations. He does not mention this result to his readers. Of course, the fact that science has ample examples of beneficial mutations is a mere Google search away. So you're saying that the genetic entropy that we see today goes against Darwinian evolution thought process that we are getting better. Okay, positive mutations that we've observed. In the lab, Pseudonomus aeruginosa bacteria evolved the necessary enzymes to eat previously unusable synthetic nylon. If you prefer examples among humans, in a small community in Italy, a mutant version of the apolipoprotein AI proliferated that is more effective at removing cholesterol, giving carriers of the gene significantly lower risk for heart attack and stroke. This mutated protein is being researched as a possible future treatment. While mutations to lipoprotein receptor protein 5 can cause osteoporosis, one mutation can significantly amplify bone density and strength. The real-world carriers of this gene were the inspiration for the film Unbreakable. A mutation variant to hemoglobin, called HBC, protects against malaria. Women with a mutation to the gene for red or green color-sensing cones can see colors the rest of us can't experience. They're called tetrachromats. Or, if I may indulge, I personally have a mutation that gave me redundant tendons in my hands and legs. Since cancer took some of the tendons in my right hand, surgeons were able to slide over my extras. I had to retrain my brain, but it was a very beneficial mutation. For my particular circumstance. These genetic differences are actually increasing our complexity and making us better individuals and better as a race. That's right. We're actually going downhill. And here's the thing about mutations, and any kind of categorization of uphill or downhill, good or bad. A benefit in one environment might be a detriment in another. A mutation that makes a bear's fur white is very helpful in the Arctic and very detrimental in the forest. And because environments change, attributes that were once negative or neutral can suddenly become positive when climate or natural resources change, or vice versa. Perhaps the food supply becomes higher in a tree or lower to the ground. The advantage flips. There's no such thing as an objectively good mutation or an objectively bad mutation. And even benefits come with costs in terms of energy expenditure or other compromises. So any graph one may try to make plotting the usefulness of mutations would be valid for one and only one environment. Change the environment, and you change the graph. The entire discussion of beneficial mutations is arbitrary, so to claim no mutation can be beneficial is rather ridiculous. But when we actually measure the mutation rate and see the mutations accumulating, it's probably a thousand or ten thousand times too fast for Darwinian evolution to deal with. What Robert and John ignore or dismiss, depending on the chapter, is the effect of natural selection that I assume he's referring to here. The reason beneficial mutations take hold in a population where harmful mutations do not is the observed phenomenon of natural selection. If a change increases reproductive success, then that change is going to be passed along to more offspring than a mutation that limits the opportunity to reproduce. But here, I think we have a couple of experts handy to explain. Alright, so supposedly these countless mutations or uh, happy accidents work with natural selection and survival of the fittest to create creatures who will survive more and more obstacles as they continue to mutate upwards. Right. Like those who can see better or run faster have a better chance of survival. The word upwards has the wrong connotation of directionality, but otherwise that's a relatively accurate description. It's embarrassing when the hosts know more than the expert guest. As is affirmed in countless observations that are accepted even by the most dedicated young earth creationists like Eric, natural selection is a real phenomenon that easily outstrips genetic entropy. When natural selection is allowed to act, there is one species where this may not be the case. 
While evolutionary theory predicts that mankind has some higher evolutionary future, the human genome is not lying. We're actually degenerating and becoming less superhuman. John goes on to claim that geneticists realize that genetic information is currently being lost, which must eventually result in reduced fitness for our species. This decline in fitness is believed to be occurring at 1-2% to 2 per generation. John references this paper from James Crow throughout the book, pulling short quotations that paint a picture of support for John's contention that the human genome has always been degrading. But that is not the truth at all. Crow specifically limits his findings to the current human population. In the very paper John cites, Crow says, However efficient natural selection was in eliminating harmful mutations in the past, it is no longer so in much of the world. In the wealthy nations, natural selection for differential mortality is greatly reduced. A newborn infant now has a large possibility of surviving past the reproducing years. Except for prenatal mortality, natural selection for effective mutation removal has been greatly reduced. Natural evolution requires descent with modification acted on by natural selection. And humanity has long since pulled ourselves out of the workings of natural selection as Crow suggests. Modern technology medical advances, fertility enhancement on one hand, and birth control on the other, all come together to allow human genes to continue that once in our history would not, while artificially capping the passing on of otherwise fit genes of those who choose non-parenting pursuits. Until the emergence of a new environmental shift that kills a significant portion of our population and necessitates new ways of living, something like drastic climate change, a new disease, or zombie apocalypse. Hello, people, zombies. Wake up. Humanity is largely out of the natural selection game. We are now shaping our environment rather than being shaped by our environment. John has deliberately selected only the parts of Crow's research that support his findings and ignored the parts that do not, thus misrepresenting it. If, human, if humanity is hundreds of thousands of years old and if our common ancestor chimpanzee was millions of years ago, we'd be extinct by now. Let's talk about that. How chimps would be extinct by now under Robert's genetic entropy model. Let's say that chimps are 8 million years old, a common approximation for divergence from our common ancestor. With a generation average of 22 years, that means Robert puts 363,000 generations of chimps over the line of genetic entropy extinction. It sounds like Robert also believes that even the corresponding 7,000 generations of humans would have entropied to death. Now let's assume that the Earth and all of its creatures were created 6,000 years ago. That would mean we're on our 12,000th generation of dog, 72,000th generation of rabbits, 365,000th generation of aphids, and 158 millionth generation of E. coli. How have these species survived all these mutations if even the thought of humans lasting 7,000 generations is laughable? If this genetic entropy model is true, how have they escaped? There's no way to stop it. It's the, the continual degradation of information is going to kill us off. The true test of any scientific hypothesis or model is how well it holds up to real-world data and the novelty of the predictions it can make that hold true to empirical observation. How well does genetic entropy hold up? Well, in the words of John Sanford himself, it is true that most lab experiments do not show clear degeneration. By the way, anytime someone, even me, uses a quote from a person in defiance of the known position of that person, assume it's a quote mine. I'll provide a link, but I trust you'll agree that Sanford acknowledges his claims are generally not confirmed by experimental data. Robert and John can point to as many rational-sounding mathematical models as they want, showing deadly accumulations of small mutations. 
But if the predictions of these models are not confirmed by observation, then it is the model that must be adjusted to fit reality. We don't deny reality to affirm the model. In the real world, we do not see this supposed universal decline in fitness on any timescale. It is only by presupposing the idea that nature sprung into existence with complete perfection that this genetic entropy doomsday clock can make any sense. We know that modern humans are taller, stronger, and living longer than humans in the past, and this trend began long before advancements in hygiene and medicine. And to deny that any mutation could ever be beneficial is also to deny the creation-supported idea that species we see today are variations of previous ancestors, that polar bears and grizzly bears are in the same family tree. So which is it? If you're interested in this topic further, please check out an extensive essay on this topic by Dr. Scott Buchanan, an evangelical Christian of the Biologus Ministry, who goes into great depth on the underlying scientific problems in the claims made by John and Robert. Link in the description. Even among evangelical Christians, only Robert and John give any credence to this genetic entropy idea. So you probably shouldn't either. Thanks for watching. Between videos, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Pologia Zero. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and tap the notification bell for Pologia to see my latest science or ham and egg videos. Hey, look, here's another video of mine to watch. There's time for one more. Just tap. Do it. Thanks as always to my patrons who help make this channel possible. If you'd like to help me increase the quality and quantity of my work here, please visit patreon.com slash Until next time, later.